1: for free shipping and 365 day returns.
0: I introduced what I call my 70-30 rule, which is 70% of your job should fuel you up and fire you up. 30% of all jobs suck. And so that is an important thing to understand because I think we are conditioned in the way that we just go through life to think that the grass is always greener on the other side. And the truth is maybe we should start watering and mowing our own grass in the backyard. The other thing I talk about is the sitting in your car rule, which I implore on my whole team here, which is when you're getting into work and you know that moment when you get in, you drive into work and you're sitting in the car, you turn it off and you take that deep breath. And my my sitting in your car car rule is if two days in a row after you kind of turn off your car and you're ready to go in and you have that sense of dread versus that fired up and excitement. If two days in a row that happens, and it's not attributed to your own procrastination or your own self-development,
2: which are both, you know, self-inflicted, um, then it's time to change something. <laughs>
3: How you did? How you did? That was the voice of Chris Tuff. And we were talking about the largest generation in the workforce right now and the largest generation period right now. We were talking about millennials. He's got an amazing book, which as of today, as of recording this, just became a USA Today bestseller. So it's definitely one that's selling off the shelves, and I hope that you get as well. His book is called The Millennial Whisperer. And we were talking about how to basically come up with a practical Profit-focused playbook for working with and motivating the world's largest generation. You know, how to dispel the myths of us being the entitled, the needy, the impatient, the naive, the poor, and the shallow. Uh, My hope is that as you listen to this podcast, you're able to, one, understand how to look beyond biases and look beyond the surface, but also understand basically how to get deeper with working with people that you will inevitably come across in the workplace, at home, or very Well, be your neighbors. Hope you enjoy the episode. Also, hope you check out his links. He's up to some amazing things. I'll make sure I put all those in the show notes. Enjoy the episode.
2: Welcome, everybody, to another episode of As Told by Nomads. And today's guest is Chris tough Now, Chris is going to be talking about my generation, a lot of people's generation, the largest generation in the world. That's right, millennials. And Chris's particular background is pretty interesting. As one of the first marketers to work with startups like Facebook in 2005, Chris has built his career surrounded by millennials while I become one of the most sought out leaders in the digital marketing space. You know, he's a partner at the ad agency 22 Squared in Atlanta, Georgia, where the Super Bowl was, and uh, he, he is successfully attracted, motivated, and whispered to many millennials on, on a daily basis. So very, very curious to hear what he does and how he addresses all the millennial myths and how he believes our generation can be motivated and incentivized. Welcome to the show.
0: Thanks so much. Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me on.
2: Pleasure is mine. So Chris, you know, um, how does one go from, you know, I guess birth to becoming this uh, amazing 38-year-old ad executive who is studying millennials and combating myths that is called us lazy naive poor shallow needy entitled i just want to get there
0: so you know uh, i i say to everyone around me um those that work with me on my team and the group of amazing millennials or my wife and friends it's i think life should be a ruthless pursuit of passions and if you look at my track it is not linear you know i was I fell into the digital marketing space. I was on the uh, kind of account side, then creative side. And then I kind of fell into this mix of all of them, which was the emerging media, social media side of the world, which ended up blowing up. Um, But what I've been able to do is kind of follow those passions, identify those passions as I've gone through life and also been able to allow those things to evolve. And I think within, and, and really, what my calling was around writing this book is to help change our organizations to better adapt for what I think we all want deep down. I'm, a, I mean, I was born in 1980, but I'm a millennial at heart. Like, I'm actually much more of probably a millennial than most millennials. You know, I'm,
2: Some I'm dead. seeking. Some we'll people put, right? we'll put you at millennial, right? Some people put you at ninety Some people
0: would, yeah, 1980. It's right on the cusp. I mean, uh, the official cutoff is what 82 to 96, but. Right. Um, you know, there's bl- there's blurred lines between all generations. And um, uh, you know, one of the big things that I set out to do in the book is uh, you know, instead of looking at this as one generation, let's at least split it into two generations. So the older millennials, which I call the Oregon Trail millennials, because they played Oregon Trail at some point in their upbringing, um on computers, and the Snapchat millennials, which is the younger millennials. And the two what makes them very different, you know, kind of generations within that one big one is one, when the recession hit either them or their parents, and two, when in their lives they adopted social media and mobile phones, because the older millennials didn't have mobile phones growing up, you know they they went through even most of college without even being on Facebook, and the younger ones grew up with it at the most formative parts of their life through puberty, et cetera. and so what it's made for is I think very two very different generations that have very different issues that need to be both addressed and adapted towards within our organizations.
2: Yeah. Well then so this is the number one question I have. I I've studied generations as well. I, I study human behavior for a living and I do that across cultures. And one of the things that I've noticed is, you know, a lot of times human nature is just to point out difference, difference, difference. And sometimes, um, just make you feel bad for the differences, but with, no, gener- really? yeah, but with generations, it's always been fascinating to me because I've, As 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 I've done research, I found that every generation had a problem with the previous generation, and they've they've almost said similar things. It it might not have been the same platforms, you know. Whether it's with, you know, uh, you know people that are from um, World War Two, World War One, it's like you know now it's like we need to get more um, you know women in the workplace because a lot of us are coming from war. And then it's not that. Then it's like you need to make sure you stay in the job till you you know you get your you know foreign can become respected. Then it's not that. And it's The you know industrial revolution type of generation. It's like every generation is influenced by a big, uh, significant um, cultural force or shift. And with our generation, whether it's the latter half or the first half, it was the the beginning of the internet and then the digital revolution. And so, why is it that older generations sometimes are resistant to the changes that newer generations are being um, uh, exposed to, even though they're the ones that are probably the reason for the shift.
0: Yeah, that's a great <laughs> question. And I think a reason for what the product is, what it is, Sweet. you know, so a couple of things, one, one of my favorite quotes in all of this is millennials aren't the problem. They just expose the problems within our organizations. And so I think that's one key thing. And then another one is uh, a friend of mine who's a senior executive uh, boomer at the home depot. And after reading the book three times, he's one of the stories in the book as well. But after reading it, he came to me and he said, you know what, Chris, millennial, it's much more of a mindset. And you know what? I think deep down, I'm kind of a millennial. And I think, you know, you look at like the similarities and focus on more of that. Like, that's where that's what I want this book to help kind of be a catalyst towards because, you know, from and, and you know, for you as a, you know, a, person that studies human behavior, there have been massive shifts that have happened and it's, it's happening quicker than ever before. And there's no better place to look than, uh, our mobile phones. And so we've all adapted. And you know, so some of those themes are, we all want instant gratification, right? We, when you, when you grow up with Instagram at your fingertips, and especially with this next generation where your social capital is built upon these platforms, we want that quick, instant gratification. It's also what makes us to be a much needier, um, I think, generation. And so what are some of the things that we can put in, put into place and introduce to our workplaces that will alleviate those things? And I think one of them is when I come in, I'm like, guys, life is not perfect. And I know that, you know, I introduced what I call my seventy thirty rule, which is seventy percent of your job should fuel you up and fire you up. Thirty percent of all jobs suck. And so that is an important thing to understand because I think we are conditioned in the way that we just go through life to think that the grass is always greener on the other side. And the truth is maybe we should start watering and mowing our own grass in the backyard. The other thing I talk about is the sitting in your car rule, which I'm implore on my whole team here, which is when you're getting into work and you know that moment when you get in, you drive into work and you're sitting in the car, you turn it off and you take that deep breath. And my, my sit in your car car rule is if two days in a row after you kind of turn off your car and you're ready to go in and you have that sense of dread versus that fired up and excitement, If two days in a row that happens and it's not attributed to your own procrastination or your own self-development, which are both, you know, self-inflicted, um, then it's time to change something. So, you know, I, I think these things are, what I'm trying to do with this book is, is change the way that we look not only towards this generation, but more so use this generation to adapt for, you know, a lot of the improvements that are needed in our old school corporations.
2: I like what you said that, you know, you, you were reminded of that quote. You said millennials just exposed the problem. And I think part of it, a lot of the problems we've had throughout generations is this simultaneously our ability to just sort of disconnect with things we're not comfortable with. And whether it's, you know, and I'm, I'm writing a book on this, but whether it's like, whether it's slavery or whether it's, you know, colonialism or any of these things, if we didn't understand something, you disconnect. Like that's a normal emotion. And it's so interesting that we are social beings and we're driven by connection. But sometimes when we find something that really runs counter to what the norm is, we disconnect. And then we, I hear a lot of the you know lazy, entitled, and different things. Now you you are someone who you, you're you're right on the bubble. You were pretty early to you know to a lot of this generations. So, you know Facebook, all these things that have have been said to fuel you know instant gratification. How do you um, handle that? Uh, I guess that those myths, as, as you, you're one that runs counter to the, the, the typical stereotype, because people will probably have thought of you as a millennial, and you're definitely not lazy. You're, you're not entitled, but I'm sure you've come across some lazy and entitled millennials. So how do you, you know, uh, run counter to those stereotypes when you're in the workplaces and you're with people that are much older than you? What do you do? to make great. It or not. Yeah.
0: Great question. And, and, you know, part of this, I was in an interview two days ago and the guy
2: said, um, you know, his was interviewing me and he was very boomer and, um, yeah. I mean, wanted to just prove me wrong. And, um, you know, he was like, well, you know, millennials are
0: entitled and they are needy and they are all these things. And you look at some of the mistakes, some of them are making as leaders. And I said, listen, hold up, dude. You can't just, you can't just replace millennials with inexperience, right? And I, I have a, I have a huge respect for people that are my, you know, elders and that have had the experiences that make them much wiser. And I am, you know, I see it within myself. I'm developing all the time. And, and it's easy to even look back a year ago and I was like, oh, you know, I was so mature, but that's just immature. You know, look at how much I've matured. But I yeah. think all that does is show growth, and so, you know, I think a lot of people are so quick to be like, oh, these, freak, you know, um, the 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 thing that he brought up was um, the New York City and Amazon thing, and you know, kind of these younger leaders that aren't letting Amazon in. I'm like, listen, all you're doing is replacing, you know, younger leaders with um with with millennials, and you're just throwing it on them. And so, yeah, you know, I think that's an important thing to distinguish that we're just it's you, you millennials are younger, so you can't just take it and, um, throw it in there. Sorry.
2: Absolutely. And I live in New York city. So, and uh, the, 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 interesting thing with the Amazon thing is I honestly felt like that was a lot of, uh, politicians not knowing how to work together because I, you know, I, I think most of the people, I think it was 70% of people wanted it to happen, but on the political side, whether there were millennials, I'm sure there's some millennials on there too. I, I actually believe that. But, um, it was not just, a. <laughs> I don't believe it was a millennial thing. It was all these people that couldn't, uh, come up together with, uh, compromises and, uh, totally. so I, I, I hate when people just assign bullying to one thing. Okay. Um, you know,
0: one thing, you know, one thing you'll see on the cover of my book, uh, the way that we designed it was to invite kind of that boomer and Xer generation in, because we are, uh, we outline words of all of these kind of what we associate with millennials. I mean, go to Google. If you Google millennials are, you'll see a lot of these things prepopulate in. But I do think, you know, some of those things that are true. We are needy. I'm needy as hell. Do you know why? Because I grew up, you know, being told the things that I was doing right, being told the things that I was doing wrong, but I also grew up with a great support system. And you know, when these young millennials show up on our doorstep straight out of school and we are so quick to say oh my goodness look at how unprepared these millennials are we've got to look back at why they are the way they are and you know it's uh, a lot of these kids went from their school to their latin practice to their varsity lacrosse to you know, home to study for three hours to their SAT tutor to then their, you know, uh, trilingual immersion Cantonese class. And then they went to bed and then they woke up and they did it all over again. And then they go to the best school possible and then they show up on our doorsteps and we're saying, why aren't they better prepared for the world? And so I think we need to move away from that, um, now, uh, and, and instead Create an environment where everyone can thrive.
2: So that's exactly right. The environment has to be, a, a, there has to be a sense of belonging and inclusiveness with that. It, and to to that point, what exactly are the best ways to motivate and incentivize um, millennials, beyond workers?
0: So I use, uh, so I think rewarding um, on a peer to peer level as well as from a manager level is super essential. And um, I have two kind of examples that I'll pull from the book. One is a company out in San Francisco. And, uh, this company is called Domo. They refer to all of their employees as Domo sapiens. And on the first day of anyone going to Domo on their first day of work, they write their name and then they write on the Spotify, uh, Spotify playlist, what their at bat song is. So if they were to walk up at bat, just like in stadiums, what would their song be? You know, we are the champions, blah, blah, blah. So, After that, they're like, oh, well, that's kind of weird. I wonder what that is. And um, they quickly find out on the first day of every month, they take the salesperson of that prior month and they play the at bat song of that person. Alarms go off through the warehouse, which is their office. Blue sirens start going off and then they drag a 10 foot blue rooster to the desk of the salesperson of the month and you know what everyone is clamoring for that blue rooster because that's their sign of you know recognition that and that's an you know that's kind of a a ridiculous example but i think it's a good example it's not it's not a cash bonus or anything like that it's a blue rooster and everyone clamors for it
2: yeah yeah it's a it's playing what playing on human psychology especially a lot of uh, like millennials, our generation, the idea that you're working for something, you know, that speaks for to sure. passion point. You're working towards something. You're working for something. Um, it's not. I think even your research, you probably find that a lot of what drives our generation is not necessarily money. It's the idea that there, there's a goal they were working towards, and, and it, it means something. And for sure, the audacity to to seek meaning is being. <laughs> totally. Yeah, I know. Like, oh my goodness, I'm actually seeking meaning and purpose. And that's like uh, uh, being seen as um, a bad thing. But if a company is able to sort of tie that to their company or corporate culture, like Domo did, I think, yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, it's kind of cool you do that.
0: Well, then, you know, and then I'm like, okay, listen, I know you got you all aren't gonna go and buy a 10 foot blue rooster that you'll put on wheels. And, you know, I I know most people aren't going to do that. So a tangible tactical takeaway is what I do with my team. We're in all of our team statuses. We do what's called snaps and we begin our team status where we just go around person to person informally and we'll give snaps to one another. So I'll say, "Uh, Meg, I just want to give snaps for that awesome presentation you gave to you know, the Home Depot, you killed it, you went above and beyond and the way that you held the room and did this and that snaps and then everyone kind of snaps. And that goes on for about 25 or 30 minutes. And it's 10 times more entertaining than filling out a status report sheet and an Excel document that you then go around the room for. But more than importantly, it creates this environment of peer to peer recognition. And, um, and it, and it's, it's, a rah, rah spirit. And you know, if you were to, and and what people attend some of my team statuses, and they're like, Chris, that was absolutely amazing. Like I'm so fired up. I'm like, all we did was snaps, you know? And so what, one thing that I want to remind everyone and I do in my speeches is my intentions around writing this book is not to become famous. It's not to make a bunch of money because uh, I can guarantee you with how much I put into this thing, that's not happening. My, my main intention is to help change the world for the better by bringing more love and empathy. I think deep down as human beings, and you talk about it a lot, um, we all just want to be loved and accepted. And then I want to encourage more connection from person to person. And you know, there are ways that we can implement that. And I think snaps is one example of that.
2: I know. I love it. And I think what you're talking about here is essentially establishing effective, Reward systems, right? So, and and whatever is indicative of your culture or your corporate culture requires you to listen, and the art of listening is not something that should be thrown away because someone has a different generation from you are. Like you, you I also want you know, um, people to understand that millennials are not a monolith. A lot of times, the the reason why I get um, um, I laugh actually when I hate, see lazy entitled to millennials is because I'm always saying that, that you're being lazy by calling us lazy because that's not indicative of the largest generation in the world. It's the laziest thing to just assign one word or a few words to that. So I don't want people to go away from this interview or from your book, um, w- which once again is called The Millennial Whisperer, thinking that they don't, they don't have to, to, to listen and understand. So please tell me how to identify train and then empower these leaders how can we find the right type of millennials and bring them to the company so i mean
0: and i i, th- I think one um one thing i say is uh re- re- recruit slow and fire fast and um i think that's true for any industry uh and in any company but you know the courtship is very important um i think in finding both the right cultural fit as well as uh as the world become more becomes more sophisticated with the types of jobs that we're hiring for, I think it's harder to find those fits. And you know, sometimes it's cultural, sometimes it's you know a passion thing. But I think there needs to be more put into that courtship, and I talk a lot about it in the book. Um, that um, I think is so important that you get that vibe. Um, you know, one thing that I bring up is for a lot of our jobs, we'll do a trial to hire um, where we do freelance to hire for like six to eight weeks where it's like, let's just feel it out on both sides
2: before we um, make uh, a longer term. The piece, but I think also it's people, we, we need to create an environment where people
0: can um, identify their own tracks. Uh, and you know, the, the, metaphor I use is it's like, it's more of like an ant farm. Like these things aren't linear and we all have our own ant farms that we're kind of trying to figure out, um, where our paths lie. And, um, we're not following someone in front of us because where I feel like true, you know, where the, where the best things happen is when you match your own purpose with company purpose, and then obviously need. And to do that, it takes a lot of hard work and, um, I think constant communication and interaction with your employees to, to help, um, make those audibles to, to, to actually see it as a reality. So, you know, it's a, it's a lot of these things all culminated into one and yeah, it's asking a lot of leaders and you know, you want to go down into the statistics, look at the Deloitte millennial survey. What are they looking for out of their leaders? They're looking for one more than anything else inspirational leadership. They're looking for autonomy. They're looking for transparency. And don't you dare be a hypocrite because you will get called out in two seconds. So, you know, one thing about that. So inspirational leadership. If you were to ask Bob, the leader of the group, hey, Bob, um, so we were wondering, do you consider yourself an inspirational leader? Bob will say, hell yeah, I am. Did you see how they lit up when I did that team status? Blah blah blah. And then you're like, OK, great. Thanks, Bob. And then you go to two of the people on Bob's team and you're like, now Melissa Melissa and Jane. I was wondering, is Bob is Bob an inspirational leader? They'll say, Hell no, he's not. Are you
1: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care.
0: and so it's like i think inspirational leadership is one of those things and and why i created uh a, a, one of the things that comes along with the book is uh online millennial uh assessment and uh, it's a leadership assessment and you can find it on the com. but it's you know things like inspirational leadership are so um it's, 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 it's really, you got to ask your team whether or not you're inspirational and it's not, um, most people do think they are that. And in reality they are not. So, um, what my assessment does is that it, it's 360 where you can actually get the opinions of your team on kind of a lot of these different tenants of what it takes to really thrive, I think, in today's day and age. It's, uh,
2: I love the fact that you're talking about creating and exploring different career paths for, different career track options rather for your uh, employers so that you you can actually get to the meat of what it is that they want to do with their lives. I I think I've noticed, at least when I get into companies, leaders are uh, reluctant to ask the millennial leaders what, what it is that they're passionate about, what their passion projects are, because they feel like it would take away from the actual company that they're hired in. And so they sort of just, it's just unspoken. Uh, and, and that's and
0: crazy, right? Like, yeah. I mean, isn't that crazy? Like, I mean, one thing I say to everyone, I'm like, listen, everyone should have a side hustle. I don't care. You know, it could be a nonprofit. It could be uh, a clothing company. Everyone should have a hot side hustle. If you need help building it, I'll help you build it. But we should all have things outside of our day to day to help fuel momentum because the truth about momentum begets momentum and there are going to be down times, and they're going to be great times. But, What's going to fuel you to that next level? And, you know, the other piece is is that I think a lot of people think that they have to quit their jobs in order to truly pursue something entrepreneurial, whereas a lot of the times you can actually do it at the place you're at while proving whether or not that thing will work. And 90% of startups fail, like statistically. So you've got a one out of 10 chance. So why not allow them to have that leeway um, without forcing them to leave to do it?
2: Yeah. Yeah. But I'm, 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 I'm certain someone is still saying as you know, he or she heard you that that's not what I hired you to do. And that will cause a distraction. So, and I, funny enough, I got my last time I got fired. I've been fired twice. Last time I got fired is because I was spending too much time on my, on this. And so, sure. uh, yeah. Uh, and I, I've had these conversations and, and it's, yeah, it's just interesting hearing the mindset because I always want to understand it. And the mindset is, If you're not, if I pay you to do something and you are doing something else on my time, it's completely disrespectful and it shouldn't be done. So what do you say to that?
0: I said, look at the most innovative companies and what's keeping them ahead. I mean, take Google, take Facebook, take any of these leaders. They have programs in place where between 10 and 20 percent of an employee's time is dedicated towards pursuing their passions, whatever that might be. And you also look at you know what Google has done so well with some of their moonshots, um, where they're innovating way outside of what their core kind of expertise is. A lot of those things have come from employees pursuing these things. And listen, we're not all Google. We're not all Facebook. And um, we need to look at um, the world that we live in and the corporations. It's like listen, you can't compare. You know so it's like, it's more of like, okay, well, where do we even start? Well, one thing that we even introduced at our company is called one week, one month, where it's like, where everyone gets one week off to donate time to a nonprofit of their choice. Our, our whole purpose within our company is together. We give rise to change. And so, okay, that's great. So how are you going to back that up? All right. Everyone gets five days off paid, paid, um, to do, and donate their time to a nonprofit of their choice. The one month thing is every three years you can apply to work anywhere in the world for a nonprofit for a month, uh, fully paid and supported. And so, you know, I use those, it's like, yeah, sure. Okay. We don't have to necessarily just put away, put aside 10% of our time or 20% of our time. There are ways that we can start working our, 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 or helping our employees harness some of those passions to, I think, trigger the, the places in our head and heart that will not only keep us going, but fire us up.
2: I, and, and, that, that, and that's, you know, speaking of ways to fire them up, you believe in actually getting to know your employees. Like you, you said, instead of just giving out bonuses, something personal could, could uh, suffice for that.
0: Oh, I mean, 100%. Uh, I mean, once again, I think what what do we need more of right now in the world? Just taking a step back. I mean, I think it's it's it really is. It's more person to person connection and more love. I mean, I think deep down we all want to be loved and accepted. And so what better way than actually getting to know your employees as real people? Um, and it's human nature. I feel like and that's where I'm trying to be that catalyst of I feel like for so long. As corporations, we've tried to have home life and work life, and there are distinct lines and walls between those. But what I feel like mobile and technology and social and all these things have done is that it really is much more of work life integration, not just how we work and the flexibility that's needed for that, um, but also with the types of relationships that we connect with our employees about and um you know it's been contentious i think with some more conservative people that i've talked to but um i think that we're seeing it work um so
2: yeah and i'm glad you said it's contentious because i thought it was only me that used to get that the pushback because i i always say like we we work or go to school for most of our lives those are the two institutions education and workplace so it, it to me it would make sense for you to completely be yourself in these two institutions if you're going to spend most of your life in in either of them. So the idea that you have to separate a part of yourself um, can get pretty problematic in today's digital world where things are blurred. A hundred percent. It does get pushback. Um, And I've I've also gotten a lot of success with it. But the idea of um, – you know, the, the pushback for me, I guess I always have to get outside of myself to and look at it from another lens because I have to remember that my experience is informing that. But I'm glad that you you've said that. So it's not just me. OK, good.
0: <laughs> totally. Totally. <laughs>
2: um, yeah, well, on, on the, on the uh, latter half of the interview here, but I, I want to dig into you. So tell me more about your your personal life and your passion and your career, because I, how does, you know, one get into one of the first, um, uh, marketing executives of Facebook and then writing a book and, you know, obviously being, uh, such a thought leader in the space, what was it like for you as a child? What were your passions? What were your mistakes? You know, and what did you learn from all of those?
0: So, you know, I start the book with, um, the fact that my older brother, uh, Alex once turned to me and this was about six years ago. I was super um, into, you know, the social media marketing. And, you know, that was a lot of what I talked about and, you know, how social is evolving and these new platforms. And I was going on one of these tirades and he goes, Chris, has anyone ever diagnosed you with a passion disorder? (laughs) I was like, a passion disorder. What's that? He was like, that's, that's what you have because you get so excited uh, when you get into something and and talk about it. And, you know, I think, yeah. So, my whole thing around life should be a ruthless pursuit of passions, That that's what I do and everything I do. I mean, this book is a good example of it. It's, yeah, I think it's one thing saying it's another thing doing. How many people do you know that say they're going to publish a book and then how many actually do it? And congrats to you for actually doing it. And you know, 7 million. So I've always lived kind of ridiculousness of, of, living and breathing this stuff because I'm, I get so passionate about it. So, you know, I had 64 job interviews before I fell into the digital marketing space. And, uh, I I interviewed at everything and all of them said no. And you know, this was after I graduated from Vanderbilt, I was living in Boston and I went home with my tail between my legs. And then I interviewed at this digital marketing firm. I'm like, I think this is the jam. And then I got there and I, was like, okay, this is kind of close to what I want to do. And then I popped over, I made $28,000 for five years in a row. And my dad kept saying, Chris, why do you keep making these lateral moves? I'm like, dad, I got it. You know, I I just, I need to fuel my soul and this passion. And then I fell into it. And so, you know, this book is another good example and a little overboard with it maybe as my wife will (laughs) attest to, but, um, you know, I want to change the world and i think that when your intentions are so pure which mine are and you can feel it touch it um scale it with tangible takeaways like the way i've tried to write this thing um i sign all my books with the best is yet to come and i truly believe that and i'm starting to see some of the impact that it's that it's making out there so you know, I, I think, you know, one thing I talk about also is one of the sayings I hate more than anything or emails I hate is when people say, Hey, let's, let's grab coffee or let's do this. And one thing that Sheryl Sandberg actually introduced at Facebook was by when, which was, she took all of her, her salespeople. It was right after she started and she did a training program around how to answer all kind of, um, business objectives with by when. And someone told me this way back and I brought it to my team where anyone that sends, uh, email or says, let's write a book by when, uh, by February 12th. So, you know, it's, I think an instant accountability to, um, anything that you do. Also, I would just encourage any listener out there to try it. So next time you say, Hey, let's grab coffee. How many of those things actually materialize? Right. So answer it immediately with, okay, by when? And people will be taken aback, be like, uh, next week. Great. Let's make it happen. Go. And so, I mean, I used that as an example. I know this was kind of a long tirade, but, um, yeah. One thing saying it's another thing doing. Uh,
2: so you're such a, you, you're like the master of segues with this. So, um, I, I asked that question cause I wanted to lead up to, why do you think a lot of people don't do what they're going to say with passions? I, even, I'll give you an example. Like with, uh, my book, um, the book deal was signed in December and they'd asked me if, um, you know, March 1st was a good deadline. I was like, yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> I was like, oh, maybe roughly three months. And and then um, I, I just didn't even think much of it. I was like, yeah, I, can, I think I will just carve out some time. And then the more I, I talked to fellow authors and they're like, you are insane. I needed this amount of months. I need this amount of months. And then, as I started writing, I was like, "Oh, this is what they're saying." Because there were moments when I was facing resistance, and I okay. knew I had to do it. And I was like, "But I'm not writing." And I was like, "I had to do. It. I had to do it." And then it wasn't until um, I was like, "I'm just gonna sit on this computer. I'm gonna type. Yeah, type, type, type." And it's gonna continue. And I would just do that every day. But I was I was fascinated with how much mental toughness it took because I knew what I had to do. And I'd done the math if I did this amount of pages per day, but then sometimes I would stare at the computer and I was like, "I'm, I'm ready to write it. Why is this a problem?" <laughs> totally. So, yeah, I'm just I'm curious about about that part of the of the human psyche where, you know, you know what you have to do and uh and, and sometimes you don't do it and I guess that's what separates the the you know the goods from the greats because I imagine athletes go through the same thing. Hundred um, percent. I know they do. Uh, entrepreneurs and, and and several where the ones that put in the time. That's why you hear the cliché thing. I you know, I put in time when everybody was asleep and I just stayed there. I committed to 300 shots a day or whatever. That type of mental toughness is something that allows you to see your passion through
0: 100%. And you know, I think we live in a world where everything is instant gratification and you can dissect any of the failures out there whether it be the Fire Festival or whatever it is in current events and you know, I think that we as human beings have a really difficult time with the fact that stuff's hard. These things, uh, my friend, Tommy Breedlove, who is, uh, he was actually the inspiration behind the book itself. When I introduced myself as the millennial whisperer, he told me, uh, well, you got to write that book. But, uh, he tells me that, uh, now a lot of these things are muscles and the thing about muscles is that you got to work them every single day. And I think we, get so fixated with the champagne moments that we share on Instagram, those huge celebrations, um, the um, you know, winning the big race, whatever it is, that we forget to really enjoy the ride, but also focus to your point on the ride. And um, you know, I think we need to instead flex some of these muscles and celebrate the flexing of those muscles on a daily basis versus just focusing on some end goal that you share on your different platforms and tell your friends about that then gives you cred. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I, one book that I just read that I highly recommend is the new David Goggins book. Um, have I haven't, you,
2: I haven't read it. I, it's on my yeah. uh, audible. I haven't read it yet. I've it, all it's the
0: good. <laughs> it's good. You want to talk about hurt, embracing the hurt. I mean and that's a whole other level. But a lot of the things he says, it's I I was very I was able to relate with the process of what it takes to effectively uh publish a book. Um I I was able to relate and so I highly recommend you read it.
2: Okay. I'm not, I'm I'm definitely going to be on it. But I that that particular point you brought up about you being, you know, someone that that uh has that uh, ability and to always seek passions, and then you question and challenge people to say, well, you wanted, you say you should do this, when are you gonna do this? I think sometimes, ironically, people have applied that to, uh, to millennials, our generation, when they say you are all talking, you're not actually a hardworking person. But I think the gap has been people not listening to the, I, or people miss, misunderstanding what, people, what millennials would say when I, I'm passionate about changing the world in this way, and then leaders saying, okay, I get how you're passionate about changing the world here. Let's figure out how to work together and have mutual goals at the same time. And that mutual goal purpose is what's missing where people don't know how to look beyond their already uh, intended destination. You know? So I think the more people are able to have the actual conversation, person to person, like you say, saying, connect, the more they will see it as actually, um, uh, you know, there's actually more common ground than they think that there was. And so- totally.
0: And I, I mean, I think, you know, you can put it on yourselves as leaders to hold the accountability, um, to the team, you know, so like, like one thing I did, uh, quick, uh, uh, quick story, but, um, you know, one thing I did as a part of my exercise of people pursuing their passions is I told my team in a team status, I said, in six weeks, I'm going to be hosting a Jeffersonian dinner, meaning that only one person's allowed to talk at a time. And everyone at that dinner is going to announce their purpose statement. Here's a worksheet. I will work with all of you one on one over the next six weeks to identify exactly what your purpose is. But at that dinner, you're going to be announcing that. And everyone was like, what? Like, this is crazy. And people struggled through it. And, you know, they worked through it. And what ended up happening was by far the one of the greatest nights of my whole career. And everyone shared their purposes. And it was a stake in the ground for every single one of them that they can start running towards. And, you know, one one thing that I also did after that was I worked with them and like, okay, here's your purpose. Here's our company purpose. And here's your day to day. Let's start connecting the dots of where we need to create new leeways um, to help you get to what is the core to your head and heart
2: yeah you know i was was chuckling there because i do the exact same thing (laughs) so whenever i I consult with companies i always say uh we're going to go around i want everyone to have the leaders in there i want everyone to uh announce regardless of what what company you're in just tell me what it is that you want to do by the end of your life what is what is that you're passionate about um and then you know we just say it could be anything i want to glide i want to do whatever And and then ask them why and then we go into that and then um so, you know, and sometimes the CEOs tell me, like, you know, now I understand why that person is the way he or she is, because maybe I could motivate that person by, by saying those epithets. And I, I just started doing that because as someone who has been fired twice and had 85 plus job rejections, I was like, if I'm looking at the, the common thread of my particular career, it was when I started to follow my curiosities, like my best friend always said. Totally. It was, that was the time that I actually became the best version of myself. I'm 29 now. And I didn't, you know, I've always, you know, I was always, uh, inspired by the late Nelson Dale and Oprah Winfrey, but the podcast came out as a result of my curiosity, which ultimately launched my career. And I didn't see that path happening until I just said, I'm just going to do the podcast. So So what would
0: your answer to that question be? What's the one thing that you would want to, what's your, what's your answer to that? What's the one thing you want to do accomplish?
2: One thing that I've always wanted to do is, uh, is always teach people how to be better communicators across cultures. And I wanted to, I've always wanted to do that across three fields, um, education, media, and, uh, and uh, workplaces. And with media, I want I to tell stories that are representative of our world. Uh, because for much of my life when I was young, I didn't feel seen, heard, or understood. So I want people to get that experience. And then with workplaces, it's exactly what you do, and I feel like we don't have enough systems that have caught up to the times to, to um, humanize <laughs> the people totally uh, and and then with education it's, it's the same sort of thing i i I'm a Nigerian and a lot of times when you, you don't see your stories it, it plays a role into how you think about yourself a uh, mm-hmm. big inferiority you know I you know I always tell the story of how people would would uh, when I first came to America people um would you know sing lion King songs or things like that first of all they would argue with me about the fact that I'm you know, my English was good. And like, you're not Nigerian. There's no way. And then right. when they found that, they'd be like, yo, is it, this is this what happens here. And I was like, man, I guess the history is being taught from like a post-colonial level. No one is actually teaching about the pre-colonial history and all that. And it, you just don't humanize people that you don't know. And so those three industries would be the, the ways that I feel like I'm uniquely suited to to make an impact. in. So
0: but, I love it. Well, I mean, I think we need a lot more of it. I mean, now more than ever before. And, uh, you know, props to you for actually doing what you're saying.
2: Uh, well, <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, uh, I, I know a lot, of, I know I made my parents nervous like you did as well, but uh, uh, now they can see that I, I wasn't entirely insane. <laughs> exactly. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I it? love it. Um, well, as we get ready to wrap up, I always uh, give the, uh, the guests an opportunity to uh, share where they can you know, be connect. you reached out to where they can connect with the audience and, and where can you find your books where can you find your
0: books? Sure. Yeah. I mean uh, uh the millennial uh dot com is uh probably one of the best places for the resources. Uh we are in all major bookstores in Amazon. So uh once again, uh millennial is a very difficult word to spell. It's two L's and two N's. It took me a while. Uh and having now written this book, I know how to spell it effectively. Um, and, uh, the best way to reach me on Twitter is at Chris tough. Uh, and then I am, uh, pretty much on every other social platform. So just connect with me, uh, at tough two, two on Instagram, but, uh, I, I love connecting with others and, uh, you know, I think the best is yet to come. So, uh, let's do this thing.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. He's only 38 ladies and gentlemen, the best is yet to come. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the last, the last question is the mission statement of my, uh, uh, Podcast The reason I do anything, I, I, my mission statement is use your difference to make a difference. And I believe everyone can. So, how do you use your difference to make a difference?
0: Well, so I, I combine, I think, both my passion disorder with my um, sensitivity to uh, do the two main things that I have been put on this earth to do, which is bring more love and empathy and more connection. And that is true for my daughters and wife. And it's true for my organization. And it's true with what I'm trying to do with this book. And I think we need a lot more of it in the world that we're living in. And I think, you know, the other pieces is I think we can either focus on the light or the dark. And I am always focused on the light because we have to get better. We have to um choose light over dark to i think do what we call life and life can get difficult um and i think one of the other pieces is we got to support those around us so um you know uh i i think we're doing it i really do yeah
2: well it's been a pleasure for i really love your story i love the fact that you're you're passionate about this and just in general and uh, you're using that to really combat myths but also tell people how to make Use of the resources which are people that we have around us in a more effective way.
0: 100%. I love it. I love it.
2: Thank you so much, ladies and gentlemen. Till next time, use your difference to make a difference.
3: You've just been listening to the As Told by Nomads podcast. For more ways to reach out to Tayo and to use your difference to make a difference, head over to www.tayoroxen.com.